Welcome to Four Quarter Lives, a podcast exploring the profound impact of longer lives and careers on everything, countries, companies, couples, and careers. I'm Aviva Wittenberg-Cox, and on this week's Four Quarter Lives, I talk with Helen Tupper, the ebullient co-founder and co-CEO of Amazing If. This company has single-handedly invented and sold the idea of squiggly careers and invited companies large and small to park the ladder and flex their career models. They work for large companies, but then democratize their tools and experience through their best-selling books, their 4 million download Pod Plus podcast, and a website stuffed full of cool career resources. We explore their fun and innovative approach, especially to helping organizations retain and engage midlifers with tools like Progression Bingo and a new program called Squiggle and Stay. So, Helen Tupper, welcome to Four Quarter Lives. Thank you so much for being with me. Oh, I'm delighted. Very much looking forward to this conversation. So I heard about Squiggly Careers. When I was at Harvard, it was actually somebody who said, have you heard of this company, Amazing If? They do the most amazing work. (laughs) And that's when I started to follow all your good work. And I've been interested in how you've managed to balance kind of two sides of this career change equation that not very many people do. A lot of people are working with individuals on how to plan careers and rethink, you know, their paths. And I'm talking to quite a few of them this season. And then there's the whole issue of changing how companies are working and are they remodeling careers to become more squiggly or are we really stuck to the kind of linear career that has been plaguing us for many a year and trying to reshape that. So I want to first talk about those two sides. Did you think about that kind of two sides of the equation right from the beginning of Amazing If? Well, firstly, I'm very delighted that people are talking about Amazing If at Harvard. That makes me very happy. Um, (laughs) Some of the smartest thinkers and and learners in the world talking about squiggly careers. It's brilliant. To answer your question, a less smart insight, I think, is that it was not intentional to begin with. Now it is very, very intentional in terms of the impact that we have. But at the beginning, the idea of squiggly careers really took the form of some sessions that Sarah and I ran to help people take more ownership of their development. And it was very, it was very centered around the individual because we were managing bigger teams and mentoring lots of people. And there seemed to be some consistency in the challenges people were experiencing. And we decided to sort of work together um, to try and scale some solutions for people. But you know, that it was individually. Uh, sort of focused and then what happened was we got great feedback and people loved it and we were really happy six months later nine months later these people got back in touch and said love that session but dot 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 (laughs) I went to have a conversation with my manager about my squiggly career and my career possibilities and my confidence gremlins and all the other things we talk about and you know I hit a bit of a, a bit of a kind of wall a bit of a barrier where they told me to fill out the form or they told me to talk about promotions, or they asked me what my next step in the organisation was. And we realised that to some extent, we were sort of empowering and enabling people to talk about their squiggly careers, but we were setting them up to fail if we didn't enable managers to have squiggly career conversations and enable organisations to create squiggly career structures. Um, And that really became the 
oh, there's a bigger thing for us to work on here in sight. Um, And that has been the direction and and drive behind what we've done since is how do we enable individuals? So that's, you know, the podcasts, the books, the tools. But then what do we do to support organisations? And when we think about making careers better for everybody, it's very much that two-sided thing we're looking at individuals and organizations so organizations keep people for longer and they're more engaged and individuals enjoy the work they're doing and have more impact and I think because me and Sarah came from big companies and we managed big teams but we love we love large organizations but we've experienced some of the sort of progression problems within them Um, and we're also very motivated about our development so we've we've experience with that individual context too so I think it just feels very authentic for us to serve those two audiences as well as motivating because we significantly increase our impact when we work in that way. So tell me a bit about what are the two service kind of lines that you're offering so people know if they need you what is it that they can ask you for? So overarching overarching mission of the organisation is to make careers better for everybody. And from an individual perspective, that is about being the most useful source of career support that they can access. Wherever they are, wherever they work, whatever they do, we want to make that available to them. So for example, the podcast, nearly at 400 episodes now, 4 million downloads. The episodes all come with a lot of free resources, pod sheets, pod notes, pod plus, because we don't want access you know, money, for example, to be a blocker to somebody's career development. And I think one of the things that we realised is a lot of the time when your company is the provider, the only provider of your career support, um, levels are limiter very often in companies like, oh, you can't you can't get coaching support until you're that senior. Well, what if we teach everyone to coach themselves? Doesn't that get rid of that barrier? Um, and, you know, you can only get a mentor if you're in the club well, why don't we democratise development so people can mentor each other? And so we, tr- we really try to break down some of that ladder-like limiting stuff that gets in the way of people's development and learning and make it And accessible. you do an amazing job, like democratising ah. the tools and handing them out for free and make them available on your website. So really, listeners, take a look at all the kind of great stuff you hand out for free on your website. And your podcast. And that massively pays back for us too. So I think what we've learned is that when we work in that way, we create advocacy for squiggly careers. So people share it on our behalf. And and, and that's a big part of how it's scaled. So the way we talk about uh, networking is people helping people. And we like to think that that's what the squiggly career community is built on. We give as much as we can, you know, democratise development with generosity at the heart. And then what happens is that community gives back. They take us into their organisations, which then comes on... T- to the second sort of side of squiggly, which is what what do we do in companies? Um, and that's that's a blend. So we help the individuals in organisations. So we'll often work with HR and LD departments to design training programs to support people with squiggly skills. So a lot of what we do. But actually it goes it goes quite far beyond that now. So that there's the manager piece, there's a whole program around how do we enable managers to support people in their squiggly careers? There's a piece around sort of culture and structure of an organisation too. So what's the language we use in companies so that we lose the ladder and support squiggly? And there's the structure piece. How do we make sure people can squiggle and stay? Um, And that's, you know, I guess the sophistication of squiggly has grown over time. And we believe now if we can upskill individuals, enable managers to have squiggly career conversations, create squiggly cultures and structures, then that, that really is where we're looking at a squiggly career company. 
Yep, absolutely. The three pillars of change I've always yeah. said are leadership, culture, and systems. And so rare is the company that hits them all and you've done it beautifully. And I love the whole ethos of this generosity at the heart and democratizing the ability to squiggle. So your co-founder, Sarah Ellis, and you have been the inventors of this whole squiggly career metaphor. I see it right over your shoulder because you've got a poster on it for those who are listening. And you wrote a book of the same name, which was a big hit. It became a number one Sunday Times business bestseller. And you, the subtitle, it was, you invited people to ditch the ladder, discover opportunity, design your career. I love it. So we're going to focus on each of these ideas, but particularly how they play out in midlife, which you call, and I love this term that you used, a choiceful time. So why do you call it a choiceful time? What does that mean? Generally, squiggly careers give people more choice because they don't have to be limited by the ladder. They can develop in different directions. They, you know, they don't have to be defined by the last job that they did. But I think turning that choice into something that we feel really confident in and that we can really own, I think that takes a bit of self-awareness, experience and insight. Otherwise, it can just be a bit random. You know, like early in your career, you've got all these choices and then you can be a bit like, oh, I'll do that and I'll do that and I'll do that and I'll do that. Um, squiggle right off into the stretch. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I think what we really want to do is take that awareness about what motivates and drives me and the insight about where I have the most impact and use that opportunity that a squiggly career creates to make informed choices. And I think at midlife, you you have that awareness, you have that insight. And so that ability to be choiceful, be, to do, really be informed about those directions you could develop in. I think it's a really interesting tipping point in your career where, you know, you have a lot more confidence providing you invested in that skill about what you do and how you grow. Yeah. And I think how many people are still stuck in doing what they're good at and why do they get stuck there? I think a lot of people, a lot of people get stuck. And I think it is because they have often made their career development dependent on other people. So, you know, an organization or a manager, for example, like I see you sort of solving this for me and I haven't necessarily thought this through for myself. Also, I think people's identity can get very tied up in the company they work for and the role that they do. And I experience this at either. I, I, you know, the, the job that I do now is a side project for a long time, but my own identity got very tied up in the company that I worked for. And then you can start to get stuck. So even if you think you want to do other things, it starts to be well, who am I if I don't work for this company? And so I think issues with identity stop people doing different things. Fear of failure. Well, you know, if I fail in this, am I a failure in my entire career? And also this sort of, this sort of dependency that happens with our development where we get stuck in sort of wait mode rather than create mode. Or I'm going to go look for opportunities. I'm going to see what I could be. We kind of hope that someone will sort it for us. And I think any of those issues really hold people back and lead to them sort of stagnating and getting frustrated in their career development. And that's, you know, at the very moment in our lives where we want the energy to do something different and to, to go after other opportunities and maybe to pivot um, with our progression. At that very point in time, lots of those sort of challenges can, can hold people back. Yeah, so the whole struggle between kind of confidence to change and fear of losing what you've kind of invested in is a really important balance that you're exploring. It's also values. You talked about sort of the first stages of career being a time of early compromises yeah. and that people 
for a lot of their first part of their career, they have to, they, it is extrinsic, right? They have to respond to other people's desires, sometimes more than their own. And they finally realize it one day and decide it might be time to change. I think that learning about your values at any stage of your career is actually really important. So values being the things that motivate and drive people. And without that understanding about what really motivates me, you can default to what makes other people happy. So does it make my manager happy for me to work on that job? Is that the easy option for me to say yes to that opportunity? And so when you know your values, you you, you have a much better filter for the decisions you make, because essentially you want to align your decisions to the, the things that motivate and drive you. So for example, one of my values is freedom. Um, and when I'm thinking about the things that I do and the companies that I work with, I'm very much looking for which companies enable that. So, you know, I used to work for Virgin, really great alignment with my freedom value because I, you know, I got to have a blank piece of paper and, and start from scratch. So I think values are useful for people to know at any stage in their career. I think the difference again with midlife is that you have more data for your development. So I can look back at my squiggly career so far and I can see the high moments and I can see my values being really present in those positions and I can see when it was hard and I can see what I had to compromise and that then gives me that confidence that this is me. I've, I've had repeated situations where these things have shown up or they've been missing and it's affected how I felt about my work and my worth at work. And now I know that what I do going forward needs to be based on these things. So I, I think it's just that accumulation of data but it goes back to why I think that self-awareness here is so important. We're always talking with Squiggly about the combination of self-awareness and action. So we want you to use your experiences as data for your development, but then we need you to do something with it. So all the awareness in the world, if you're the most reflective person, is, is you know, Good, good for you, but we need that information to inform something. But then if you're an out and out doer, you know, you're, you're very action orientated and you do that without the awareness, the risk is you're sort of moving around from sort of role to role without really considering what's going on and potentially repeating patterns that aren't yeah, making absolutely. you very happy. So it's the awareness and the action that we're always trying to get to. And I'm curious, how many people do you find, like, is this a you know, who can actually articulate their values, who've taken the time to figure out what they were, to sit on the data, digest it a little bit, look at their last decade and say, okay, from this, I'm learning this piece of self-awareness. Because I find now, especially people are just in so much of a kind of crunch, stress, rat race kind of mode of running forward, that many of them have never taken the time to pause. Are you finding that? Or is this, for many of them, when you work with them, is this like kind of a first opportunity to think through their value set? Um, I think for a lot of people, it is a first, it is a first opportunity. And I think, I guess in the past, this was sort of the domain of a one-to-one -one coaching relationship. It's certainly when I first learned about my values, yeah. I had a brilliant coach called Joe Simpson years and years ago, 15 years ago, who taught me this idea of values and I'd never come across it before. And at the time, I had no idea how beneficial it was going to be. I think what we are trying to do is support people at scale because that one-to-one -one coaching relationship is inaccessible to a lot of yeah. people because companies can't afford it, individuals can't afford it. What I find, though, is we don't always meet people with the squiggly skills when they need them. So typically what will happen is a company will get in touch and they'll say, we really want to help our employees take ownership of their career development. Can you run some programs with us? 
we work with them to design that program, one of which might be our five skills succeed in the squiggly career program. And we will talk about all of the five skills that we think are most fundamental for people taking ownership of their development, one of which is values. And there is a lot of engagement and there is a lot of interest and there's a lot of nodding and there's a lot of interaction. <laughs> but in that moment, it's not necessarily when they really, really need to know. So what typically happens is, you know, three months, six months down the line, we'll get an email and it will say, oh, we're going through a restructure and I've been given two opportunities that I could progress in the company. I'm going through consultation, these are opportunities. The work that you did with us on values has really helped me make my decision. And we get lots of messages like that. Um, I've just become a manager and it's really helped me to define what kind of manager I want to be. And so I think these, these skills are you know, they're, they're continually important, but I think they peak for different people at different times. And it's it's making sure that they've kind of they've got it in their kind of bank so that when those things happen in their squiggly careers, when changes happen, which happen frequently, they they have that skill kind of on reserve and ready to help them. And is there anything about this particularly choiceful time of midlife where it takes a bit more time to digest the past because when you hit your 40s, 50s, yeah, you've got decades to kind of sift through. And do you find that values shift and evolve? Is there a big kind of, yeah, I tried that. I think one of the biggest challenges is people at this stage of life making time for themselves because they've actually got, there's generally a lot going on in their life. Yeah. You know, maybe it's yeah. children, maybe it's parents, maybe it's kind of they're a kind of middle manager in their career. And so they're kind of sort of having that kind of, uh, you know, directions from yeah, all sides. Yep. Exactly that. So I actually thinking saying, let's take some time for you to just be in your head about your development is probably one of the hardest things to do when there's a lot of noise, noise going on around them. And I think that to me is probably probably the main barrier for them. And then I think the second thing would be if they take the time to develop the self-awareness, to very sort of be very present with their reflections, I think it is then the confidence to take action. So I think that those two things, I think, are the things that we have to work on the most. The tools work for themselves. You know, values are values. And, and to your point about do they change, the research says that actually it's, it's largely our early life experiences that inform what motivates and drives us. And that doesn't significantly change as we get older. What might change is the priority of the things that motivate and drive you. So, for example, my freedom driver is my number one driver in terms of my, my values. And I thought that when I became a parent that need to be unconstrained about my choices, which is which is my definition of freedom, I thought that that, you know, may, maybe that would fall back a bit and something else would come up to the top in my kind of list of values. And it hasn't. It, it is still, in fact, I think it's maybe even more important to me because yeah, so many people are pulling on me that I, I'm so passionate about retaining that freedom. But, you know, it, so the order can change. Limited but, to walking the door dog now once a day out the back <laughs> just leave me in the bath on my own I just need some freedom yeah. or you know whatever it is but I think yeah it's it's the order might change but the research says you're not suddenly a different person overnight when you hit 45 yeah. or 50. And what are the key obstacles that these midlife career changers bump into you said one of the number ones is the ability to ask for help. Mm. And this ties in with the confidence piece so it's very likely 
that if you are in this choiceful time, you might be exploring doing something different. So you're kind of taking stock of your squiggly career so far and thinking, oh, I'm kind of ready. I'm ready for a change. I think a lot of our time in our career, we're responding to change, restructures, new managers, all that kind of stuff. I think this is a time when we're kind of going, I'm, I'm ready for a change now. And I'm they, ready to be the, the catalyst yes. of my own change. Yeah. yeah, that kind of readiness versus sort of responsiveness, I think, is, is, is a bit of a shift that happens here. But it is likely that some form of help is going to be needed in order to make that happen. Now, that might be a mentor who has done what you want to do, or it, come, it could be like a sponsor who is, you know, opening some doors to your development by making introductions for you. But... That is only enabled when you ask for help. So when you are clear about what you need and you're confident to ask for it. And I think that that ability to ask for help is something that holds a lot of people back. One, because they either don't recognise it. So it's sort of like, oh, I, I just I just need to work a bit harder at this myself. I just need to, you know, keep keep trying that sort of I'll just get it done in my way that I've always done it. Or even if you recognise that you need it, this feeling like, well, Aviva's really busy or Aviva's really senior or Aviva won't doesn't know me from someone else why why would Aviva want to help me and it's sort of this this sort of confidence gremlin that we have that we're not able to ask for help we're not worth someone else's time we're not important enough to to make that ask and that narrative stops people getting the support that could help them make those changes yeah I keep arguing with my kids who there's a generational piece here that the young don't you know think that we're all these old people are too busy and senior and think I keep telling them there's nothing we like more than to give some time and help to kids we we most of us wish we'd had more of it but that's a really hard lesson to impart there's a really deep-seated reluctance I agree to ask for help which I think is culturally kind of embedded and I'm wondering if you see a gender difference in there are women or men better able to ask for help maybe in certain domains or areas of life what I think I see and this is in the sessions that you know the sessions that we run on confidence and also just in my own experience sort of coaching people I see that men are less emotional about asking for help like for them it is a it is literally just an ask oh do you know anybody can you just be too what do you think about this like it is just an ask like an ask without an emotion it's a sort of a, a transaction between two people and if that help is provided great if it's not no problem i'm going to ask someone else it's 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 sort of neutralized whereas for women it seems a lot more emotive there's sort of like a lot that's gone in around in their head before they make the ask so that when the ask finally comes it comes with a lot of weight <laughs> it comes with a lot of worry yeah. and therefore if someone doesn't respond I mean lots of people just don't respond if you email someone and ask for help lots of people just don't respond now a man I think would just be like well just ask someone else but yeah. a woman is suddenly saying oh why haven't they responded that reinforces this confidence gremlin I have about I'm not important enough and and I think that 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 holds it back. And so what they may be more likely to do is they'll have a very trusted community of a few people that they might make a lot of asks of versus a sort of a wider network where they can tap into and transact with a, a broader type of help. My business partner is an amazing asker. It, it, yeah. it, is, it is brilliant to see. And I realised this 
first with our book, The Squiggly Career, that came out in 2020. So we're going through the writing process. We're asking for people's contributions and quotes towards the book. And I'm thinking, oh, I can't ask that person. I can't email them. I can't do that. Sarah, in, in the meantime, has, has sent off like 20 emails, 10 messages and had five meetings. And, and because she is sort of unemotive about the ask. And that's because, and this is what I have realised, that she might be asking someone for help, but she's also communicating how she can help them in return. That is always in her thinking. It's not an ask in isolation. It's a Aviva, I'd really love to help you grow the podcast. What if we did this together? What are the things that I could really do with is this? And and this sort of people helping people and, and ask between two people rather than just a, I need this from you. It has, I've seen that in action and it's made me much more confident about, well, what, what do I need? But also what can I give and, and making that part so of So developing a help. relationship rather than just this kind of basic transactional, you know, scratch yeah. my back, I'll scratch yours. Yeah, kind of we've, I mean, we call it career karma and people helping people. But there's this idea of it's absolutely fine to think about what you can gain from a relationship. It's absolutely fine. It's, you know, what, what do I need to know and who's got the knowledge that I need? It's, it's fine to think like that, but also think, and what have I got to give? Because it just, it makes that ask easier. It makes the relationship a lot stronger. Which is the challenge with the kids and the younger generation is they don't think they have anything to give. And I tell them that their way, of, you know, their way of seeing the world is the biggest gift they can give to older people because we need to understand their perspectives in order to run our own shows. Well, sometimes when we when we work with people and, and we see that a lot again, people thinking, well, what have I got to give? Again, often a sign of a confidence gremlin when that when that kind of yeah. response comes. And we talk about kind of three E's to get people started. Expertise. So, you know, what have you got some specific knowledge in? That could be some technology, that could be social media platforms, it could be loads of things, but kind of what do what do you specifically know? Um the second is experience. So, you know, what lived experience have you got? I've, you know, I've started a business. I'm a mum of two children. I oh I've worked in lots of different companies. Like what's what's your kind of experience? And then the third one is energy. Like what are you just really passionate about? And when you've kind of got those insights, you then go, well who needs what I what I know? And and you can sort of join some of those dots. But even if you think, oh, I'm really early on in my career and I haven't got a lot of expertise in anything, um, you've probably got energy for something. There's probably yeah. something you're particularly passionate about and you could help someone with that energy. Yeah, no, absolutely. That's probably a really undermeasured value. So asking for help, big one, big one, big one. And, and I wonder just to conclude on my gender wanderings here, if there are I find women are particularly good at asking for help socially, relationally, in their families, in the personal domain. And men are much more at ease asking transactionally for the kind of thing you were describing in the work world and much less ready to ask for anything in the personal, emotional world. And I think that's why we're so complimentary is we're kind of better at asking uh, in different domains would you would you agree or am I just um, <laughs> stereotyping madly here um I think from the the, the research that I have seen I, I would agree and um for men in particular there's a, a guy called Max Dickens who whose work I follow and he's written a book called Billy Nomates and it actually centers on some of the that the mental health problems that can arise from men's inability to ask for help outside of work. Yeah. So, you know, that um, this is something I want to talk about. Or this is something that I'm struggling with. So I, you know, I've seen the evidence that, that exactly yeah. what you're saying is, is, is very true. I mean, I think the more openly we can talk about 
what I've got to give and what I need to gain in and outside of work. But obviously my focus is kind of work context or careers. I think the, be- the better it is for everybody. Okay, so asking for help. And the other thing that is a a really big obstacle for most people, particularly at midlife, is they don't know what they want to do next. Mm. They know where they want to change. But this idea of the creative imagination of future selves seems particularly challenging. Have you seen that and how do you address it? Yeah, very much so. Um, I, people get really stuck on a step when they think about careers like ladder and they often can commonly see beyond a silo that they might be working in. So if I think about when I was at Microsoft, which was kind of my last employer, corporate employer, and I was in marketing, when you look at your career like a ladder, then I would only see opportunities that were similar to what I was doing and more senior. Um, and what happens is your sort of pool of possibility just becomes much, much narrower. Because <laughs> it all, yeah. it all, everything has to make sense when you look at it, look at your career like that. And actually, careers that are diverse and different don't always make sense. Like, did it make sense for me to go from one of the world's largest organizations to running one of the smallest? Probably not, but it's been a brilliant move for my career. And I think what we have to help people is to see different directions that they they can develop in. And we we do that with people in, in a number of ways. One of the ways that we do it is we kind of prompt possibility thinking for people. So when you think of careers like ladders, you get very stuck in a planned way of thinking. Like, if I do this, then this is my next job. Um, and very again, logical, rational, yes, yeah. prove it to me, you know, yeah. show me the links. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Show me the links. Show me what someone who did my job did next. Logical, linear, predictable, planned. Unfortunately, we do not work in a logical, linear, predictable, planned world. And so... Managing our careers like that is sort of out, out of sync. I don't know. I imagine all the AI machines and hiring algorithms are going exactly down that rabbit hole. Yeah. Well, I mean, potentially, I hope they might kind of, uh, I hope they might unlock some opportunities. I was reading some research today, actually, about how it will unlock opportunities for people that maybe because they haven't got the qualifications, because it enables them to learn much faster, like an individual plus AI, it could actually open up different directions for them because they might not have had to have that qualification. So I hope it creates more diverse development opportunities for people. But I think with all things AI, time, time will, time will tell. Um, But the possibility prompts, if we're going to kind of let go of this idea of sort of linear, predictable, ladder-like careers that get people stuck on steps and in silos, then what we do need to do is try to prompt possibility thinking, because it's not necessarily the way that people have been trained to think about their development. And so very often we'll talk people through four possibilities that we just want them to get curious about. So this isn't about committing your career. This isn't about applying for jobs. It is just, let's explore these opportunities. And and the first one is the obvious. Like we always say explore the obvious because it, it, it could be a good fit for you. But also don't assume that it is. So yeah. go and find out, you know, what skills that needs. Is it what you want to be known for? Go find out what a day in the life looks like in that job. Is it actually a day in the life you want to do? Uh, don't just assume because it's obvious it's right for you. So, you know, we include the obvious opportunity, the sort of one that makes squiggly sense. Then we include the ambitious opportunity. So something that feels interesting, but a bit out of reach right now. A lot of people feel that even if they can name that, they leave it for a really long time because it feels quite far away. And we say, just get closer to it, you know, yeah. Ask to sit in a meeting in that team so you can hear more about the conversation, the context. Get mentored, put yourself forward for a project, just get closer so that you can rule it in or rule it out. 
The third one is the pivot possibility. So instead of sort of looking at your career progression through the lens of your job title, the, the similar and more senior approach, let's look at it through the lens of your talents. So who needs what you want to be known for? And if I want to be known for career development, I can do that in lots of different companies in lots of different yeah. roles, regardless yeah. of the job title. And then the last one that's always interesting, and I was talking in a room with about 60 people about this like yesterday, and they were very animated by it, is the dream <laughs> possibility. Like, yes. What would you do if you could do anything? And the reason that you want to explore the dream is sometimes dreams can be a bit of a distraction. So we can assume the grass is greener. Oh, if I wasn't running amazing if I'd be a landscape gardener or whatever. And on those, you know, on those hard days, you kind of sort of go, oh, I'd be doing this. But we've never explored that. I've never thought what the reality is of working in the mud and the rain and the cold. Um, it's just this sort of grass is greener thing. And yeah. so, you know, go and explore it. And, and you might explore it and you might say, oh, no, actually, what I've got is quite good. Great. You reconnect with your current role. Or you might explore it and think, no, that, that does sound good. But find a way to get closer. You know, do what I did. Start a side project. Do what my business partner did. Change the rhythm of your working week. So you've got four days in one role and then you've got one day doing this dream. Like, it doesn't always have to look like an either or. There are lots of ways that we can kind of piece together our possibilities now that was very different to sort of like that ladder-like situation. Wonderful. So dream in multiples and ex and get out there and get closer to them. That's a really good takeaway. All right. Now let's shift a little bit back to the corporate angle and this whole midlife issue. Are companies, in your experience, waking up to these new demographic realities of aging, talent pools, and the pervasiveness, a bit of ageism in their systems? What, what have you seen? Are you hearing these conversations? I... I think I'm probably a bit biased because I spend time in communities that are talking about this and where the companies are You're selecting you know, up. Yeah, yeah. So I am seeing a lot of companies acknowledging the opportunity of being more inclusive um, in from age particularly and also acknowledging the issues like where have we got where have we got some challenges that we need to overcome so I am definitely hearing and seeing the conversation but I think that's because I'm putting myself in these communities and I think if if companies aren't opting in proactively to learning from other companies that are doing a good job and listening to pioneers like you who are championing what we need to do differently then I think the problems are quite pervasive in the organization because I think we've we've got quite a limited view of what talent looks like and then we we support that talent and then I think we potentially stop supporting it at a point in time because we make assumptions that they don't want to, they don't want to do this stuff anymore and when you're hearing the conversations arising what's the wake-up call from is there any commonality and mm. what's shocking them is it uh, you know really low engagement scores with their q3ers suddenly is it a talent war that they can't recruit what's where's the pressure point coming in that you're hearing a couple of things that i'm seeing that i'm and, and hearing in the conversation so what is definitely around retention and actually the cost of recruitment and our ability to retain people i think there's now a like a sort of an, a waking up to hang on a minute we lose people at this stage if they want to stay they're hugely valuable and knowledgeable and they want something different from work they're not necessarily all about promotions a lot of them are about contribution and impact and actually that's really useful they also want to help other people to achieve that's really good for culture so i think there is more of a hmm 
have we been focusing on retaining the wrong people that I'm definitely hearing that. I'm also hearing a lot and a lot of, you know, I guess a lot of my networkers and marketeers, because that's my background as well. I'm also hearing a lot about reflecting customers. Like how can we serve an aging population if we don't employ that in our business? Like how, how do we Absolutely. create relatable marketing? Yep. How does people in customer service have a relatable conversation? So it, I think it's both the things that I'm hearing and seeing are both culture and, and like the commercials of this of this particular population for a company and how important that is but also the the customer and and how important it is that we have people that reflect our customers that's uh, that's very encouraging actually because so often the conversation around aging and workforce demographics is much more on the talent side than it is on the customer side and i think the short term benefit for companies is much more on the customer side that really they could get more traction with an aging customer base if they understood better what their motivations and preferences are as anybody who's sat in a restaurant with really, really loud music <laughs> who can't hear the person you're talking about would attest, right? Now, you have a wonderful program. I love the title of this. It's called Squiggle and Stay to help companies retain some of their Q2 talent. What, how's that resonating? What is it all about? What, do you, what is it focusing on? Um, I'm so excited about this. I think one of the most things that I'm proudest of over the last 10 years that we've worked on. Uh, so it all, it all came from an article that we wrote for Harvard Business Review last year on how to reimagine retention. That article got a really positive reception, but Sarah and I are always, always one of our values is work in progress. And so we were like, well, how, what would make that better? And we decided that what would make it better is if some of the ideas that we had shared in that article about reimagining retention were tested and experimented with so that people almost had a sort of a, a blueprint to implement them. And so we set off on finding some companies that wanted to experiment on progression with us and reimagining retention. And over the last 10 months, we've been working with 12 organisations and each organisation, this includes, you know, BBC, Specsavers, NHS Property Services, Welsh Water, very like diverse companies, Danske Bank. We each company committed to doing three progression experiments to see whether they got more interest internally. So more people wanted to apply for those opportunities um, and that they retained more people. So more people wanted to stay in the organisation because of it. And we have had some really interesting insights about what experiments work well to help people squiggle. Um, so move around the company and stay, you know, want to commit their career for longer to this company. And some some experiments have worked really well, some interesting insights we could talk about. Uh, and some things kind of haven't worked so well because they've been a bit difficult or there was a hurdle that we hadn't really imagined. But our intention is in April to pull together all of the insights into a report that uh, people can learn from. And most importantly, awareness and action that people have ways in which they can you know sell that into their companies put it in place they can learn from the the way we structured the experiments and they can adapt and adopt and do it in their companies that's what we really want to happen okay so let's dig into a little bit the learning we're going to get a little pre-taste of the report i love these different ideas why don't we start with progression bingo which is <laughs> just just a, a a wonderful playful invitation to do something that a lot of people will find very scary or risky 
Um, so progression bingo is a, a thing that we often do in our sessions. So part of the problem with progression is that if people only talk about promotion and that is the only way that they see progression happening in a company, then it's very hard for them to do anything anything different. And so one of the things we do is we get people being creative about what progression could look like. So progression bingo is, you know, simply kind of getting people to generate as many ideas for progression as they can in a company, which could include taking on more responsibility, putting themselves forward for new projects, learning a new skill. Of course, getting promoted is one of them, uh, an internal secondment or something we're exploring at the moment, external secondment. So spending some time in another company and then coming back to your own. And so we surface all of these different ideas to show that promotion is only one very small element of what progression can look like and then the thing that I'm always really interested in and this is what I really want managers to do in, in squiggly career conversations is ask people and what progression move feels most motivating to you right now and what is always very telling is that you get a variety of different answers because unsurprisingly people want to do different things with their development so we shouldn't force everyone into one yeah, way of there is no one model there yep. is no one model and that's kind of part of it but you also what I also see when we do this with people is promotion is rarely like the top choice we talk about promotion so much and we focus on it for so long but all the time and we assume that everybody wants it exactly that's success yeah exactly but you do progression bingo people surface different ways that you can develop in an organization and then then what they want to focus on first is very rarely the promotion and what that enables is managers to support people individually oh Aviva you want to learn or Helen you want more responsibility or Sarah you want to do a secondment um, and it means that we have a much more individualized way of helping people with their development and, and kind of bringing progression bingo into career conversations is one way that you unlock that thinking. Fantastic. I think that's a, a wonderful way. Uh, what are some of the other dimensions you've been, your, your favorite ones? That, yeah. uh, uh, one, one that you mentioned that was incredibly simple was just in a job description. Yeah, say this has been my favorite one because okay. it's simple, but also we've revealed, do I call it a problem? We've revealed another thing that needs to be solved. Let's say yeah. that. So yeah. the, the, the simple thing is that we've proven with some of the companies that we've worked with on this, that if you put at the top of an internal job description, this role is open to career change, you will get an uplift in the amount of internal people who put themselves forward for that position. So if you are trying to drive internal ability and to give more opportunities to the people in your company, put at the top of a job, this role is open to career change. But <laughs> this is... <laughs> it seemed too simple to be true. Yeah, yeah. So we have seen a significant uplift in, uh, in applications as a result of doing that. But what we have not seen is an uplift in the number of appointments. And the reason seems to be that managers are still looking for people that exactly fit yeah, the description. Absolutely. And so what that the says Headhunters have us trained over the yeah, last decades that we should only put copycat CVs into every single job, right? You have to keep doing what you were doing. I think we need to give managers a little bit more kind of squiggly support when they are taking people into positions that they haven't been in before. Like, what questions do you ask? For example, when I, when I moved to Microsoft, I went through a growth mindset interview process because I had never worked in technology and I had never done the job that I was applying to do. 
But the people that interviewed me have been trained in growth mindset. So they asked me much more about my capacity to learn than my capability in technology. And, and I got the role as a result of it. So I think helping my managers with what questions do you ask in a squiggly interview to, to the focus is on sort of, you know, talents, not titles. But I also think we might need to give people more transition support. So if they are making a move from yep. one function to another, so it doesn't feel, you know, isolated and we're not setting up to fail. So I think that has been really interesting. I'd love to do some more work on that. Other things, squiggly career safaris have been interesting, giving people internal holiday to spend in different functions. So they get to get curious about what they could do rather than feeling like they have to kind of commit first and then find out later whether it was the right move to make. Squiggly swaps. So one of the biggest insights we had about what stops managers encouraging mobility is they talent hoard. They hold on to the good people uh, and that holds them back and ironically makes them more likely to leave. So talent hoarding does not pay off. But what can help is a squiggly swap where maybe you and I work in the same organisation in a different function, maybe for one week a month for the next six months, we do a swap. So my manager gets your brilliant ideas and your talent and and I get to go to your team and, and contribute what I've got to give. Or maybe that's one day a week over a month. But that idea that you're not left with a gap, you get some really interesting talent from a different part of the organisation into your team can sort of overcome some of the issues with talent hoarding. doesn't solve it completely, but it means the manager's not left with a complete gap. And it's interesting because what you're pointing to is it's not just enough to change the systems, but you got to train the managers to let it in. I imagine that kind of swapping would educate both the individual and the hiring manager of the possibilities and benefits of squigglier roots. It's a breath of fresh air to hear this kind of almost gamification of the process of career management. So I hope many people listening to this will squiggle and stay innovate in their companies as well. I want to just close this fascinating exploration with just one piece of advice. What would you give one piece of advice to companies listening, one piece of advice to individuals who are restlessly yearning for the picture of a squiggle in their lives? I think the best place to start is making the swap from ladder-like language to squiggly language, because it informs how you think and it forms how you talk about your development. So instead of talking about careers, about steps and plans and titles and all that ladder-like language, let's talk about moves and let's talk about possibilities and let's talk about talents. And whether that's how you think about your own development or whether that's how you talk about development with somebody that you mentor or manage, it really starts to open up a conversation and invite more curiosity in. And honestly, that's all we're trying to do with Squiggly is open up a conversation and invite more curiosity in. And so if language is the way to get started, please like start there. Words matter. Words matter. So Helen Tupper, thank you so much for introducing us to the seductiveness of the squiggle. I think it's been incredibly convincing and, and really, really quite simple, isn't it? Yeah, it is, it is. And there's also a lot of support out there. So for anybody that is getting started with Squiggly, whether it's the free tools that we've got or the podcast or insights on Squiggly Swaps, we've got a lot to help you take this into your companies and have Squiggly conversations. And all those links are going to be in the show notes. Thanks for being with me, Ellen. Thank you Too so much, Amita. Much great to many, many Squiggles in 2024. 
For more thinking about the impact of our four-quarter lives, you can read my column at Forbes and subscribe to my Elderberries newsletter on Substack. Let's design lives that aren't just longer, but better. <laughs>